Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob, and I'm here for one reason and one reason only today. That is to run down my top 10 films of 2015. Now, a little bit of disclaimer right at the top. I haven't seen everything, including some of the most talked about awards contenders. The Revenant is actually going wide later this week. Spotlight and Room blew through my town very quickly, and with the holiday season, I did not get a chance to see those yet. So I reserve the right to revise this list somewhere down the line to better reflect you know, what I see as the top 10 uh, films of 2015. Also, just get this out of the way, you will not be hearing uh, Mad Max Fury Road on this list whatsoever. Um, I've seen it twice, and while I admire George Miller's directorial skill and some of the technical expertise involved, as well as the stunt work, that kind of thing, I still feel like the movie is somewhat overhyped. The fact that it's a Mad Max movie, and I know a lot of people have been saying this, and Tom Hardy's Max is sort of a supporting player in, in that film, it still kind of weirds me out. I don't really understand why, uh, you know, what the, what's up with that. Also, the story is just really lacking to me. Um, I mean, essentially, I know it's not really a, a story movie. It's more to be told through visuals, as everybody says. But I'm like, I'm, I'm very much a writer and I'm very much a dialogue driven person, which is why you might see some Tarantino on here. Um, and the fact that it was just basically one long car chase back and forth, who didn't quite grab me the way it did other people. Not that's not to say that I'm knocking anybody that holds that film in such high esteem. I just personally disagree. Without further ado, number ten, Mission Impossible: Rogue Nation. Now this one's interesting because now we're talking about a 20-year-old franchise that has managed to not only sustain itself over all these years but actually grow in popularity. I mean, Rogue Nation and Ghost Protocol are probably the two most critically acclaimed entries in the franchise, as well as, I think at this point, the two biggest money makers, or at least pretty close to that. And the fact that we're on the fifth installment of this series, and not only is Tom Cruise still compelling and interesting and fun to watch as Ethan Hunt, but that we're actually developing a legion of supporting characters that are becoming more and more interesting with each film. I mean, from Simon Pegg to Ving Rhames, and of course, in this movie, The Big Discovery, Rebecca Ferguson, the Mission Impossible series has really sort of developed into the new Bond franchise. I mean, you can look at Spectre if you need proof that James Bond is sort of phasing off, uh, at least over the, at least, at least now it looks like it's heading that way based on Spectre. But enough about that film. Um, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation really looks closer to a Bond film than any other Mission Impossible movie in the series by far. From the eccentric villain to the femme fatale to the globe-trotting espionage to the stunt work. The fact that they've been able to keep this alive for so long and keep it this fun. I mean, that's a big part of it. A lot of the early, the first couple installments in the series were entertaining but didn't really have that same like that same pop to them. This one and Ghost Protocol really have that element of, hey, we're all here to have fun, enjoy yourself, that kind of popcorn flavor to it, as well as the artistry to really pull off things like that opera sequence, for example. Director Christopher McQuarrie and the team behind the series are really bringing a new era of uh, Mission Impossible films for us. And I th- the fact that Paramount is reportedly locked down, not only Macquarie to come back, but also Rebecca Ferguson to reprise her role are very encouraging and I couldn't be more excited for Mission Impossible 6. Number 9. The Hateful Eight. 
Admittedly, I've been a long-time Quentin Tarantino fan, so I guess you could say I was sort of pre-sold on The Hateful Eight from the beginning. Pretty much anything he puts his name on, with the exception of something like Four Rooms, which I wasn't really too hot on, Tarantino just has such a unique voice and a unique style and storytelling prowess it's hard for me to not get swept up in whatever story he's trying to tell. And this one, which unites Samuel L. Jackson, Kurt Russell, Walton Goggins, Jennifer Jason Lee, and a few other Tarantino alums, is one of those that, for me, was really hard not to get excited about. Granted, I'm not the biggest fan of westerns, and Django Unchained was probably not one of my top Tarantino films. However, The Hateful Eight has what most of his films have, in spades, which is personality and style. I'm just so addicted to his dialogue, and this movie basically gives all of its eight main characters their big moments, their big monologues. Just as a showcase of these actors' talents alone, the film is entertaining as hell to watch. Granted, it is a little long. If you watch the 70mm Roadshow version with the intermission and the overture and all that, it does come out or just over three hours. However, the story that's being told does take that amount of length to really build up to and then unfold no without getting into spoilers it's not but the idea of a western set whodunit that very much follows the template of reservoir dogs in that it's essentially a set all mostly in one location is very satisfying to watch and while not everyone might be down for the hateful eight i guarantee the tarantino fans like me will will eat this up number eight the gift in a world where the industry is ruled essentially by franchises, sequels, remakes, reboots, and other superhero-related properties, um, The Gift really came out of nowhere and was probably one of the films that this year that surprised the most amount of people. Writer-director Joel Edgerton put together a film here that makes terrifying figures out of the people we we all know and we all come across. Rather than turning on, you know, um, a Freddy Krueger or a Jason Voorhees or a Michael Myers, this film really concentrates in the uh, resentment and revenge-driven motivations that we cultivate in the people around us, just sort of teaching audiences to recognize that, uh, you know, every action we take in life can have uh, repercussions and does affect the people around us. With this film, he really modeled his approach on, uh, of course, the master of suspense with Hitchcock, but also tapped into something that that is more unsettling at the core of who we are as people. I mean, we all have those tendencies where we want to lash out or we have uh, insecurities that we want to take out on other people and and uh you know you just never know how how something you do in your past is going to come back and reflect on your present and in the film edgerton plays a former childhood associate i guess if you want to call it uh of jason bateman's character and bateman of course is now married to the character played by rebecca hall it's that kind of film that sneaks up on you that nobody sees coming featuring one of the best twists of the year and just marks a really promising debut feature for Joel Edgerton. Number 7. Kingsman, The Secret Service At this point, spy movies have become such a popular genre that it's really hard to see one and have it be somewhat fresh or bring really much new to the table other than capturing the spirit of what the genre really started as, which is that whole sense of escapism and very like James Bondian sort of allure and sense of cool. And while Mission Impossible Rogue Nation captures all of that well, like perfectly, and is and is a great example of the spy genre done right, Kingsman is something different entirely. 
Um, it's not really a parody, and it's not really a straight-up uh, addition to the genre. However, it does to- it, it perfectly toes that line between the two in the same kind of way that Kick-Ass, which is also from director Matthew Vaughn and based on comic books by Mark Millar, managed to both be a superhero movie in and of itself as well as comment on the genre, pointing out some of the goofier aspects of it, some of the inconsistencies, things that didn't quite make sense, and subvert expectations based on playing off of moviegoers who've seen these kind of things before and thought they knew exactly what to expect. Without getting into revealing anything about the film, there is significant plot developments that do take place that very deftly diverge from what audiences have seen before in these kinds of spy films. Uh, this one just has such a high energy to it. It's just so kinetic and, uh, and witty and wry in its play on Bond films and that, that kind of genre that it really did bring something different to theaters. Then you throw in Colin Firth as the mentor, Taryn Egerton as the young protege. Not only that, it does feel like Matthew Vaughn's most complete work yet as far as capturing his vision and bringing it to the screen. Number six. Sicario. Director Denis Villeneuve has definitely turned a lot of heads over the last couple of years between his kidnapped child, psychological thriller, prisoner, and the doppelganger thriller. He's really kind of carved out a niche for himself as far as doing these really intense character-driven thrillers that delve into big topics but takes them and boils them down to a personal level centered on a main character. In this case, Emily Blunt leads the cast as a young FBI agent who's recruited for a special task force centering on the drug trade on the U.S.-Mexico border. Of course, you know, she's coming in with this idealistic view of I'm going to make a difference, and she discovers that the reality is way more complex than she ever could have imagined. Josh Brolin is also stellar here as the more veteran agent who brings her aboard, and Benicio Del Toro's mysterious character, the Sicario of the title, all deliver really amazing performances in this film that this film that is really about the cyclical nature of violence. And Villeneuve uh, proves again that he is one of the most impressive directors working today, and it's really encouraging to hear that he's going to be behind Blade Runner 2. Cinematographer Roger Deakins turns in another incredible job here shooting this film. He's done amazing work before in No Country for Old Men, Skyfall, and a bazillion other movies. But thanks to him, Sicario is one of the most visually stunning films of the year. In addition to a riveting drama, you really won't be able to guess what's coming next. Number five, Creed. All right, this is a true confession. I have still, to this day, never seen any of the five original Rocky films all the way through. It was just something that slipped past me uh, in childhood. However, I did see Rocky Balboa when that came out, and I really enjoyed that. So when I heard all the good things surrounding Creed, my interest was definitely piqued. And of course, you know, going in, I knew the uh, bullet points of the franchise, you know, Apollo Creed, Paulie, and Adrian, and Mick, and all that. So I was more or less up to speed with this ongoing saga of Rocky Balboa. But I still, I mean, I went into this movie with pretty high expectations of what Ryan Coogler was pulling off here with Michael B. Jordan starring as the son of Apollo Creed. And it was just a really moving, exhilarating film that that sells perhaps more powerfully than ever before. The whole concept that in the Rocky franchise, boxing is really just a metaphor for life. And that continuing battle to achieve your goals, to become a better person, to keep pushing forward no matter what life throws at you. And I just thought that 
they capture that so well in here with Michael B. Jordan's character having to live up to the legacy of his father and escape his shadow and figure out who he is as his own man, all the while helping to inspire Rocky to continue fighting his own fight and, uh, you know, giving him a sense of purpose in life. I would not be surprised to see Sylvester Stallone walk away with at least an Oscar nomination, if not a win for this. Definitely one of the best films of the year. Number four, Inside Out. Alright, it might not be that shocking that Pixar has delivered yet another unforgettable, extremely imaginative story for families to experience together. It might not even be that shocking that it's also one of the biggest tearjerkers of the year, or that it resonates more with parents than it does with children. What's really astounding about Inside Out is the insight that the film itself has on the emotional state of kids, as well as how they adjust to their surroundings. Of course, in this one, emotions are embodied in the different characters that we meet throughout the film. Joy, voiced by Amy Poehler, Sadness, Phyllis Smith, and we're not even going to go anywhere near Bing Bong, because I just watched this movie last night again, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm still recovering, guys. But what's remarkable about it is the way that the team at Pixar has not only come up with these very detailed, very well thought out, and actually on some level, highly intellectual observations about the way the mind works, all the little nuances and things that, that pop up in our in our heads. I mean, for instance, like the gum commercial that keeps coming back up and popping up into the head. The train of thought, or the abstract thought, I think was probably one of the more obscure jokes that probably went over a lot of people's heads, parents and children alike. But the film is really, really does come across as something of a masterpiece in that it's not only designed to entertain, to keep kids distracted and parents from being too bored while sitting at the movie theater with their children. It's actually more designed to enlighten parents and kids with the simple message that sometimes it's okay to be sad. Sometimes sadness has its purpose and is actually a necessary and vital part of life. Number three, Ex Machina. Now, anyone has seen any sci-fi movie over the past 30, 40 years can tell you that it's a long-running theme that machines are going to get us at some point. Whether they're the Terminators, the agents from the Matrix, HAL 9000, we might not know exactly how the machines are coming for us, but you can rest assured that if movies have taught us anything, artificial intelligence cannot be trusted. So think about that next time you talk to Siri. That being said, Ex Machina actually brings something new and fresh to the sci-fi genre, delving into age-old questions of what makes us human, tying in modern themes such as the connectivity that we all have thanks to the internet or the cloud-based uh, data systems, that kind of thing, and tying it all up into our our need to belong, our need to not only survive, but to have a sense of understanding with the people that we share this world with. And this film takes advantage of that sense of isolation in that its three main characters spend the entire runtime of the film essentially in one location. The themes of the film are very macro and large scale, but the film itself is actually very intimate. And the three performances from Damal Gleeson, Oscar Isaac, and Alicia Vikander are all stellar all across the board. And really 2015 was a breakout year for all three of them. Gleeson and Isaac, of course, are also featured in Star Wars The Force Awakens. And Vikander has been getting a lot of awards buzz, not only for her performance as Ava in Ex Machina, but also for her supporting turn in The Danish Girl. Probably one of the biggest surprises to come out this year. It's one of those films that no one saw coming, but then once it arrived, you just couldn't uh, escape hearing more and more about it. Number two, The Martian. Just when you're ready to count Ridley Scott out, 
he comes around with one of these. The Martian's an interesting case because I heard about the film coming out, but honestly, Matt Damon's never been one of the stars that I've just automatically wanted to see anything he's done. I think I'm still a little burned after Elysium, and I'm still a little frustrated slash confused over how I feel about Interstellar. Again, both movies that he was in with Matt Damon in space. And I'm not really familiar with the Andy Weir novel, other than the fact that it exists. So I went into The Martian not really expecting much, but just sort of going, shrugging my shoulders and being like, all right, let's see how this is. And I walked out totally floored by the film's celebration of the human spirit, its sharp sense of humor, its devotion to science, the message that it was trying to send about just working out one problem at a time and trying to inspire audiences to get into that field, and really the the playfulness of Drew Goddard's script. You know, it's one of those films that makes you rethink, wait, wait a minute, Ridley Scott doesn't have an Oscar for Best Director? How is that possible? And I know everybody's talking about George Miller this and, and uh, Todd Haynes that for Carol, etc., etc., but I mean, I would really love to see Ridley Scott get recognized, not only for this remarkable film, which... By the way, it has an uh, Oscar-worthy performance from Matt Damon, but also just for all the classics that Ridley Scott has given us thus far. Alien, Blade Runner, I mean, it's it's kind of ridiculous, and hopefully the Academy gives it to him because he knocked it out of the park with this one. Number one, Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens. All right, I know. Like, oh, how can he pick this as number one? Because it's the highest-grossing movie of all time. Well, it is domestically as of this recording, so... When it all comes down to it, these are the top 10 of 2015 from my eyes. Like any other art form, cinema is subjective. So I'm just telling you guys my favorite films. And of all the movies I saw this year, none gave me that that sense of wonder, that sense of this is what it feels like to go to the movies more than Star Wars. Granted, like millions of other people out there, I am naturally biased towards this franchise. For obvious reasons, I mean, if you guys have been listening to the podcast, you've already heard two hours of me gushing about how how great Star Wars is and how how thrilled I was with J.J. Abrams' film. Even though, granted, it does have its fair share of issues. Yes, there's a Death Star, essentially. Yes, there's way too many callbacks to the original films. I mean, really? Do we really need that chess board popping up on the Millennium Falcon? And, oh, 12 parsecs. A little too much with that. However, the, the new characters were so rich, led by Daisy Ridley as Rey, uh, John Boyega as Finn, we already mentioned Oscar Isaac from Ex Machina, the return of Han Solo was just so satisfying, and all the parallels that this new trilogy is looking to draw between both of the previous trilogies. George Lucas has long said his intention with the first two trilogies was for it to be sort of cyclical, so certain elements, certain plot details come back around, just like history, and reoccur in a slightly different way. And we're seeing that now here with some of the dynamics between Kylo Ren and the other characters. The fact that Star Wars sort of fell out of favor with mainstream audiences and now has left the public this enthusiastic to see what happens next is in and of itself a tremendous achievement. This was the year that Star Wars came back, everybody. There you have it. That's the top 10. As far as honorable mentions, uh, in alphabetical order, I also would have had Bridge of Spies, Straight Outta Compton, Steve Jobs, Trainwreck, What We Do in the Shadows. There was a bunch of other. It was actually, must have been a really good year for movies because when I was going through my list of films that I've seen, it was pretty competitive to reach that top 10. And I mean, as I said at the top of the episode, there's still a few major awards contenders that I haven't yet got a chance to catch up on. So 
Um, when I do see those, if they are worthy of my top 10, I will update the post on CrookedTable.com. In the meantime, tell me, what were your favorite films of 2015? Did we have any in common? Was I totally way off base? Send me a tweet at CrookedTable and let me know. Also, if you want to read some of my non-Crooked Table writing, you can find my work at ScreenRant.com, CheatSheet.com slash entertainment, and DailySuperheroes.com, and of course, visit CrookedTable.com for reviews to all the films mentioned here, as well as more podcasts, videos, reviews, and other movie-related goodies. Let's hope 2016 is a great year for all of us. Roll credits. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of a low KED.